Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to episode 101 of Dogcast Radio. In this show, we talk to the original dog listener, Stan Rawlinson. We tell them off by saying their name, constantly. We say, we say Rover, and when he turns out, I told you before. And in the end, the dog goes, look at my paw, because the face ain't listening. Because for 50% of the time, you're giving it a hard time. Don't do it. We meet Otto, the oldest living dog in the world. He will be 21 on the 14th of February. That'll be 147 doggy years. And before all that, we have an interview with Darlene Arden, the pet expert. Darlene is an award-winning writer, lecturer and author, and she produces and hosts her own cable television show, Creatively Speaking. She's passionate about animals, and her priority is to enhance the lives of dogs and cats. What I wanted to know was what inspired her to devote her life to animals. You know, that's a very good question, and it all goes back to one little dog, I think, that I, every friend I have today, everything that... Everything I've done that involves animals, I and mean, I've always loved animals. Mm. We lived in an apartment when I was a child, and they didn't allow animals, and my mother would take me shopping, and I was very tiny, and I would fill up the bottom of the cart with dog and cat food from oh. when she wasn't looking, <laughs> and we couldn't have a dog and cat, but I was convinced I would, so, you know, I mean, it, was, it was always there. I've always loved them. I've always gravitated towards them couldn't wait to move to a place where we could finally have a dog. Um, and then I was years without a pet. And, you know, too busy, life got in the way, college, mm. work, all of that. And ultimately, I got a dog who, be, who opened an entire world for me. And I got him... <laughs> show. I was going to, I mean, I thought great hobby because I had a hairdresser at the time who was breeding and showing Afghan hounds. Hmm. A breed only a hairdresser should have. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) A lot of coat. Didn't even want to think about that. No. And he set me on the path to thinking about shows and I was looking for breed and he thought I should have a Bichon Frise and I thought, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't get one. I mean, they were just uh, coming into the States, we were just starting to uh, see them at shows. And I ultimately, after much time, settled on Yorkshire Terriers. I fell madly in love. Hmm. And at the time, I was doing a lot of celebrity profiles. That was the main thrust of my writing. And the breeders suggested that I write about dogs. And I thought, what a crazy idea. <laughs> <laughs> It hadn't really crossed my mind to do that. And I did do an article to kind of satisfy them on dog handling as a profession, hmm. which in this country is huge. Yeah. I mean, it is just, and it gets bigger all the time. Um, and it's an important topic in the sense that if you're going to turn your dog over to somebody else, they better know what they're doing. And if somebody wants to become a dog handler, they need to know what they're getting into. Mm. So I guess at the time it was fine. But hadn't thought much about it, started, and then I wrote an article, I was very upset when parvovirus first hit the States, and I wrote about that, and I started getting assignments from Dog World magazine, and 
it grew. My interest went from human interest and, you know, things as a pet owner. I started to get involved in veterinary care, translating veterinary issues for the layperson. I go to a lot of veterinary conferences. Uh, I wanted to help people take better care of their animals because animals can't speak for themselves. And every aspect of it is so important. Even finding the right veterinarian, it has to be somebody you can communicate with and somebody who genuinely likes dogs or cats. Mm. Um, There are people who just aren't as good with one species as another or one breed or don't take the time to learn that's not dog generic because so much is crammed into their education that there's no time to tell them the specifics of each breed. And if they keep an open mind, so just trying to reach people, bring the best cutting-edge veterinary information. Uh, Then I got fascinated by behavior. I heard Dr. Karen Overall speak at a conference I was assigned to cover, and it changed my life. It was such a revelation at the time. And she is really responsible for my interest in behavior. So I kept going on and learning more and more and ultimately became a certified animal behavior consultant. Um, Still write about other issues once in a while as the mood strikes. Mm. But other, other topics, but mainly it's animals now. I have become so determined to make life better for them. And I always keep in mind, one, if I can just reach one owner, Mm. help one animal, then my life was worth something. Yeah, yeah. That's a lovely sentiment. And I mean... I found when I started talking to people for Dogcast, you know, and sort of um, having behavioral things explained to me, that was like a door opening into my dog's world because I suddenly thought, oh, that's why he does that. That's what he's thinking then. And that, that's, that gets addictive then because you just want to know more and more. Oh, exactly. And it's, people forget they're, not, they're living with another species and we need them to adapt to our world. And as much as people treat them like children, that's fine up to a point. But the point where it isn't is where you do not understand. Yeah. They have different ways of doing things that are innately canine or feline. Mm. And that's not, it's perfectly all right in that world, but not in the context of ours sometimes. I mean, dogs jump up to greet. And that's a normal dog behavior, but it's not a normal behavior in human society. Mm, mm. So we need to teach them to be more polite. Otherwise, grandma gets knocked over and her hip is broken. Yeah, yeah. Or some child feels terrorized because the dog enthusiastically greeted them and they're suddenly on their back and crying. And that becomes a trauma that could last a lifetime. Mm, mm. You look at your own dog and you think, you know, how much you love him and how, mm-hmm. how good a life you try to give him. And I think that you do get passionate about, you know, let's see if we can inspire everyone to sort of give their dog as, as good a life as they possibly can. Exactly. And yeah. you see people doing things that you know innately are wrong and finding a way to explain it ever so politely. Yeah. Um, you know, don't leave your dog in the back of the truck and then, 
it's probably not as much of a problem in your country as it is over here, but we see dogs in backs of trucks all oh, the time. Yeah. My mother used to swear that that's how I would die. It would be my obituary. She told somebody to put the dog in the cab of the truck. <laughs> <laughs> because I have no problem, even though I'm innately shy, walking up to total strangers and saying, you can't let the dog ride there. He's burning the pads of his feet, and he's not safe. He's going to, what if you have to stop in an accident? They all look at me as if I'm crazy. Yeah. But yeah. occasionally they say, oh, you're right. <laughs> you move one dog up into, well, are you riding in the back? Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I've... Back. We we don't get so much of that over here, although I have seen it occasionally. In as I say, I live in a rural area, so you do occasionally mm-hmm. get that. But the thing that is my um, hobby horse is, you know, don't tie the dog up outside a shop and leave him, and oh. and, and expect him to be there necessarily when you come back. And I hate that, and I just think, oh please. And I mean, my way around it is, I I write stories about it. So rather than sort of saying to people, you shouldn't leave your dog outside the shop, I kind of I did a story from the point of view of the the owner, the heartbroken owner whose dog had gone, the oh, heartbroken, yeah, the heartbroken, confused dog who didn't know what was going on. And then the very mercenary thief who sort of had discovered this new way of making money and, and ended up saying, I'm going to do this again. And, and I hoped that way to sort of make people think, ah, oh, yeah, that might be a bit of a silly thing to do. Mm-hmm. Or the dog could be poisoned by somebody who just doesn't like dogs. I mean, yeah. I've, I've done a great deal of writing. I also write magazine articles as well and newspaper as well as books, and my problem is reaching mainstream press because I, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir on this side of the pond. The people who know enough to buy a magazine for pet owners are usually fairly good pet owners. Yeah, yeah. And it's the, the other person who does exactly that, and unless it's reported in the newspaper that their dog's been stolen, you know, how do they know? Here we have another problem. We have people who tie dogs out in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And when I'm lecturing, I tell them, if you want to put something in the backyard, please plant a tree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dogs are family members. And we've brought them in from the farms. We've, you know, over time, we've brought them into our homes and into our lives. And they're not television sets to sit in the corner. You know, and, and after the the initial excitement wears off with the puppy and you realize it's a commitment for a lifetime, you know, people need to make that decision beforehand and understand what they're getting into. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best way to get a very aggressive dog, isn't it? Just chain it up out in the yard. Oh, absolutely. And mm. people don't understand why is the dog nasty. Well, I'd be nasty too if you chained me in your backyard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no food, no water, no shelter. Yeah. Or maybe one bowl of dirty water because nobody mm. changes it. And then the neighbors complain because the dog is barking. Yeah. You know, it just becomes a vicious circle. Yeah, definitely. I find that, I think dog owners are much better in England. I think they're better about socializing, and I think it's it's a society where you take dogs more places. Yeah. Here we're, we're more restricted. It's opening up a bit, but we've always been more restricted about where you could go with your dog. Yeah, I do. I, we're not, I suppose we're not too bad, but I do admire the French because they just take their dogs, you know, you're on the motorway and you go into a service station and the dog will be just sitting under the owner's seat and that's it. And it's, it's <laughs> accepting you go, oh, yes, why can't we do that? Well, exactly. And in Germany, they can take their dogs into restaurants. Oh, wow. 
which is amazing. A friend told me a story about taking her Athens pincher, oh, of course it's its native country anyway, over for the World Dog Show. And she and her husband went out for dinner and took the dog and sat the dog between them on the banquette and asked if they could have some water for the dog and <laughs> were totally astonished when the waiter presented it on a silver tray. He gave oh, the wow. bowl of water for the dog. <laughs> and she swore the dog looked at her as if to say, finally, somebody understands how to treat me. <laughs> oh, I do like that. Oh, I'm going to have to get Buddy and Star to Germany somehow now. That, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I just love that story. It's just, of course, they didn't take the dog into museums, but there are very few places they couldn't take the dog. Yeah, yeah. But, of course, you can only do that if your dog is well-trained. You know, that's one of the things. I, I guess maybe they may be more disciplined about it, but, you know, you do need your dog to know how to behave to get away exactly. with that. Mm. Exactly. And it's so easy to train now with operant conditioning. Anybody can do it. A child can do it. Mm. Clicker it's, training just works wonders with yeah. every animal. Doesn't it? Yep. <laughs> Dogs, cats, it's great. Mm. Uh, just worked with some shelter animals, teaching the shelter people in another state how to clicker train the dogs so that they would be more adoptable and how to clicker train the cats for environmental enrichment and to make them more adoptable. And they were astonished. That look on their faces when they saw animals that previously were either overly exuberant so you knew nobody wanted to take them on or you know those teenage dogs that are bouncing practically at the ceiling yeah and the kids the cats that wouldn't come out of their bed or the back of the cage suddenly showing interest mm. they were, oh they were so excited yeah i don't know what was more rewarding for me seeing the animals or seeing <laughs> volunteers having that <laughs> aha moment yeah it was Fabulous. I don't understand why people are still using jerk and choke training methods. That's mm. beyond my comprehension. Why would you want to break the bond, use fear, use dominance, which doesn't work? I don't, uh, I don't no. understand that. I don't understand using 50-year-old training methodologies unless you're also planning to go to a doctor who uses 50-year-old medical methodologies. <laughs> well, quite, yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I have used um, clicker training, and with my, I did actually use it with my Labrador in, initially to stop him pulling on the lead, because as you say, you know, you don't need to jerk on the, on the neck with the lead. You just kind mm -hmm. of click, and he goes, oh, oh, don't pull. Okay, fine, off we go, you know, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And then I, I kind of left it on the back burner because I taught him some tricks, you know, and we had fun with it. And I, I, I got him to do most of the things I needed him to do, and we could leave it on the back burner, and that was fine. And then I tried heel work to music. Mm, and my favourite. I, I really enjoyed it, but I spent a fortnight and didn't really get very far. And then my trainer said, have you ever used clicker training? And it was that, you know, light bulb above the head moment going, mm -hmm. yeah, of course. Now, we had fun with that, and, and the clicker training was marvellous with that. And, of course, now... You are a World Canine Freestyle Organization judge. So, you know, how, how did that happen? Oh, in a former life, and no, it's not true that I had a pet dinosaur. I'm not really <laughs> that old. But in a former life, I was an actress, singer, dancer, occasional choreographer. And the founder of World Canine Freestyle Organization, Patty Ventry, um, knew that I'd been a dancer, knew what a dog person I was, and snagged me at a dog show and dragged me over to see um, 
and I'd seen a little bit of it before, but they had a demo at the dog show. And I stood there laughing and crying at the same time. I was so moved. And she said, I want you to be a judge. I said, me? You know, I've never tried freestyle. And she said, no, we want people from different backgrounds because we want them, because this sport is so different and you have a unique perspective. You not only know dogs, but you know dance and choreography. And it started there. And my knowledge grew with, as the sport grew, I am judge number 002. Wow. I was uh, the original uh, judge's advisory member was um, the judge's liaison 001. She wanted me to have that number. She told me later, and I said, now it belongs to you. I was the first judge officially certified by the organization. Wow. And I love it. It's also a guy thing. It's not just for for women, you know, people think, oh, it's women dancing with their dogs. Sure, it's also men. We have a children's division. It is truly international. It's all over the world. We have uh, handy-dandy dancers for handicapped dogs and or owners. Hmm. And there's sassy seniors for senior dogs and or owners. I think one of the most moving things that I've seen was a blind dog dancing happily with the owner. And luckily, I wasn't judging that competition because I try to keep a straight face. I don't want anybody psyching out the judge thinking, oh, she likes this or she likes that. And I tell, you know, at the judge's meeting before, you know, I just have a word with the competitors when I'm lead judge and tell them, you can try to make me laugh. It doesn't mean that I'm not happy and smiling and jumping up and down inside. I'm keeping a straight face for a reason. Now, many times... I bit my lip until it bled. (laughs) Um, And I adore it. I really, I love it so much. And Mm. to see, you know, but luckily I wasn't judging that one. I stood outside the ring crying. Mm. It was so beautiful. Yeah. It was so beautiful to see that bond. And virtually all of the dogs are trained with positive reinforcement training, usually clicker training. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a sport where the competitors help each other. They usually end up bonding. There's a lot of love that goes around there. Yeah, yeah. And WCFO has an international list um, on the Internet where people can discuss freestyle, help each other. And it's just, it's wonderful. And there are video competitions. So if there's not a, a competition near where you live, you can enter by video. Oh, that's fantastic. It is. It's great. It gives everyone a golden opportunity. Yeah. And a lot of people use um, freestyle for demos. They'll do their practices, or maybe that's all they want to do, and they don't want to compete. And they'll go to nursing homes and schools and just use it as a way to, to make people happy. Yeah, yeah. I think it's wonderful because the thing is, you just need a bit of imagination. You don't need equipment. You don't need, you know, um, anything fancy. You just need, you know, your dog. And you can work to your dog's strength. So, for example, my Labrador, there was no way he was going to get up on his back legs. He's just too big a dog. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we did it, we did lots of spins and turns and weaves, you know, and, and a bow and things like this. Mm-hmm. So whatever your dog can do, you can work to his strengths, can't you? Well, that's absolutely what's what freestyle is all about. You don't force the dog to do anything that isn't natural for him. 
Most dogs won't work on their back legs. No reason for them to do that. There are all kinds of things they can do. And the dogs work on all sides of the owner, which means that veterinarians are finding that these dogs are better balanced. Yeah, yeah. Physically, it's great exercise for the dogs. And the dogs are the ones who choose the music. People learn that very quickly. If the dog's head is up and the tail is up and they like the music, there's your music. And it also has to go in time with the dog's gait. It has to be comfortable for the gait. And people have told me they're dancing to music they hate, but the dog likes it. (laughs) Well, he's the important one. (laughs) Exactly. They kind of come up after competition and confess, well, I really hate country music, but the dog likes it. What can I tell you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, excellent. Um, Now, you you have several books out, don't you? um, I do. The one, one that I would really love to uh, to talk about, so we'll start with that one because I get to choose. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> is Rover Get Off Her Leg. So how would you describe that for people that haven't read it yet? Rover Get Off Her Leg is a behavior book with solid behavior information and my warped sense of humor. <laughs> my feeling is that you learn better if you laugh and everybody who has a problem with their dog thinks they're the only one. Well, they're not. So I made it very simple. Here's the problem. Here's what to do. Here's what not to do and why. And then I took anecdotes from people from around the world and changed most of the names to protect the guilty. (laughs) So if you think you have a problem, somebody has the same problem or worse. So just laugh. Get on with it. If you're too tense, the dog is going to be tense. I open the book with the right way to train And by the time we get to the last chapter, it's all the things you can do with your dog now that he's so Mm well-behaved. Brilliant. I think you're absolutely right because when you're trying to train something, you can get quite tense and sort of think, you know, why? I think that's the other pitfall. When the dog does something wrong or won't do it, and you kind of go, why are you doing this to me? Mm -hmm. You know, you take it so personally. And if you just can step back a bit and go, okay, we'll do it differently. And then it's so much easier. Oh, it is. One of the things I love to do is to use Karen Pryor's uh, clicker game. And that's get a few people in the room with clickers. And even if you have only two people in the room, it's fine. Do it with a friend. One goes away if you have several people. Otherwise, you're just doing this in your own mind. And the others discuss what they want to train the dog to do. And then they bring that person back, that person being the dog. Everybody gets a chance to be the trainer. Everybody gets a chance to be the dog. And you choose something like, I want that person to go over and turn on that light switch or sit in that chair. And as they move and get closer, you click them for it. So that ultimately, they end up seeing how the dog feels. The dog is using their mind to try to puzzle out what it is you want them to do. And then there's that light bulb moment. Aha, I've got it, the aha moment. Yeah. And you can understand how frustrating it is for the dog if you're not a good trainer, if you haven't made them understand what you want. No words are spoken, not one word. And when they find it, it's great. Yeah. You understand you've broken through this this communication barrier because the clicker is an event marker. It tells the dog he's done something right. You have broken right through the language barrier. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm afraid if I was doing it, I would want chocolate treats, though, when every time I was clicked. 
Well, I usually manage that for the humans. It's not good for the dogs, no, but no, I do I... like it for the humans. The humans, yes, I work very well for chocolate too. Oh, definitely. <laughs> oh. Um, now, another book that sort of appeals to me. Um, Small dogs, big hearts, because I, oh. I always liked, you know, big dogs. And I do like big dogs. And I, I have a Labrador. And, you know, I do gravitate towards Newfies, you know, Liam Burgers. But my daughter just fell in love with Papillons. And now, in the end, we, opt, we did opt for a, a Bichon Frise uh, because it was just more sturdy. And we were quite worried that the Papillon might be a little bit too, too delicate. You know, I've never had experience mm-hmm. with a Papillon, but we ended up with a Bichon Frise. And this little scrap, this fluffy scrap of nothing came mm-hmm. into the house, tail up, and she thought she was a full-grown mastiff, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that really, that, you, absolutely small dog, big heart. You know, they don't know they're little. No. It's either they don't know they're little or they want to be sure you know they're little and don't step on them or hurt them. Yeah, uh, you know, don't, don't bite me, I'm a dog too. Uh, try not to kill me, I'm not prey. <laughs> but basically they do walk in. Usually they take over the house, the, the bigger dogs, they just run everything. Um, they're wonderful, but they're not for everyone. And that was kind of a point I wanted to make. Here's what you do with them. They're real dogs, but they have some really different needs. And people need to understand that. What I did not foresee, while I did predict that there would be more small dogs as, you know, baby boomers started to age out and downsize um, and want to get into smaller homes. I mean, you know, you get the empty nest syndrome. You want something. You want still want to have a dog. But you do not necessarily want to have something the size of a Newfoundland to travel around with. Mm. So you could get a lot of dog in a very small space and a small body, but I didn't foresee the celebrities carrying them like accessories. Mm. And that's become a problem because now every teenage girl wants the dog that she sees her favorite celebrity toting around. Well, yeah. it's not a stuffed animal. It's not a wristwatch. It's not a new handbag. It's a living, breathing, sentient being. So there are, you know, that was something I didn't foresee when I was writing the book, but It's all about how to choose a small dog, how to make life better for the dog, what to do, you know, be careful of marauding small children and big dogs who aren't supervised because that's dangerous. There are all kinds of things that can happen, and yet they can be the most wonderful companions. Mm. Mm. They're portable companions. They go everywhere. I'm sure you found that with your Bichon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of my biggest problems with her was she was so small I mean we had a rabbit at the time that was bigger than her as a puppy and I just would not believe that there was a dog brain inside that tiny little head and I thought she'll never even remember where the water bowl is you know what are we going to do with this dog and and she she just as I say she had no idea what size she was and she was just like right okay I know where this is I know where that is my Labrador was like shaking looking at her going what the heck are you and she was just, you know, hello, I'm magnificent. <laughs> you know, there was no problem with her. But it took me a while to think, yep, there's absolutely a little sharp brain in that head. You know, that was my problem. They're very intelligent. They will throw more behaviors at you when you start clicker training them. Well, did you like this? Let me show you if I do it this way. How about this? You think this is cuter? You think that was good? Wait till I show you this way I can sit <laughs> or lie down or look cute. Yeah. They're amazing. They are just amazing. Yeah. 
I mean, she, she really opened my eyes and I looked at, you know, small dogs in a completely different way then. Oh, I, th- I think a lot of people do. I don't think, I call them the Rodney Dangerfields of the dog world. Rodney Dangerfield was a huge celebrity over here, a comedian on this side of the pond, who always said he got no respect. Mm. And little dogs get, well, it was his punchline, but yeah. little dogs get no respect. Everybody thinks they're not real dogs. I've heard them called dropkick dogs, oh, barking yeah. bed slippers. I've heard every horrible thing. Mm. And they're wonderful. Of course they're real dogs. They're just in a smaller body. They lose body weight, uh, body heat more quickly than larger breed dogs, so they need a warm coat or sweater in, a, in the winter, especially where I live where there's lots of snow. Um, there are special you know, certain needs that they do have. If you pick them up too much and hold them, they have no other choice but to meet an oncoming challenge. And sometimes that's one of those darned if you do, darned if you don't situations. Yeah, yeah. It it is difficult because I've I've noticed um, with our Bichon, I mean, she's not sort of tiny, but, you know, she's a small dog. And when we're in a crowd, which sometimes we are, and... You do tend to think, I'm going to pick her up because she's so small, people won't, look, won't notice her. Mm-hmm. And then, then the reaction then, some people are going past going, oh, isn't she sweet? And then some people, you do get nasty comments about, you know, she's let her be a proper dog and let her walk. And you just think, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that for that reason. I just don't want her to be trodden on. Exactly. And that is exactly right. They have four on the floor. They can use them. But there are times when they need to be protected. I certainly would opt for picking up the dog before I'd let the dog be trampled in a, in a crowd. Yeah. That's just dangerous. You're always responsible. And there's part of that fine line that you're walking. You have to know which decisions to make. Mm. And they're always for the safety of the dog. Yeah, yeah. I have to say the other thing we've done is um, just occasionally when we've anticipated that there's going to be a big crowd, we, we do have a stroller for her. Oh, that's and, a wonderful idea. Yeah, well, we got it. And when, when, before we had her, we, we thought ahead and we thought, we, she, we thought she won't keep up with the Labrador. You know, little did we know she does. <laughs> but it was really handy when she was a tiny puppy. And we did mm-hmm. use it then. And she hasn't used it for a long time. But if I anticipate there's going to be a crowd, then I, you know, I will take the stroller just on those odd occasions. And one of the sweetest things is children will often sort of come up and look in. And then they kind of go, oh! There's a dog in there. <laughs> they, they the <laughs> I find people using them here at dog shows, and they'll transport like five chihuahuas to the yes. ring in one stroller. <laughs> it's very funny to see that, or two papillons, you know. And I just I, I watch for the strollers now at dog shows, thinking they used to be occupied by children. Now not so much. <laughs> Oh, it's much more fun pushing a dog in a pushchair and in a stroller. Honestly, I'll stick with that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, I must prove it. Yeah, um, <laughs> darling. Where can people find out more about you? They can find out more about me at my website www.darlenearden.com, mm-hmm. and I'm also on Facebook where I have a group called Fans of Rover Get Off Her Leg. Never name anything at three in the morning, Julie, um, <laughs> because we cover all animals, all companion animals. I'm also on Twitter, um, tweeting as often as I can, but trying <laughs> to keep up with everything else and work, of course. Oh, I know. But really, right. find me at DarleneArden.com. There are articles there. There's links to books. There's all sorts of information, links to 
World Canine Freestyle Organization, to some veterinary organizations. There's hopefully some very helpful links and articles there. Yeah. I'm, I'm, well, there are. I can second that because I've actually looked. So <laughs> there are. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Darlene, thank you very much for the, for the time. Thank you so much, Julie. It's been the, a pleasure being your company. We have a link to Darlene's site where you can find out more about her. And if you're on Twitter or Facebook, make sure you get the benefit of her advice there too. All Dobermans should be named Einstein. Well, perhaps that's too lavish praise. They're a bit weak on mathematics, but they certainly could earn a PhD in any other subject. Morton Wilson, dog trainer. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. I meet a lot of dogs and owners, but when I heard that they were making an appearance at my local Dogs Trust Centre, I particularly wanted to meet Lynn and Peter Jones and their dog Otto, as there's something very special about Otto. Well, he's the oldest dog in the world, officially, yes. He's been crowned the oldest dog in the world, and he's a little angel. Yeah. Bless him. And how old is he? He's, he will be 21 on the 14th of February. That, that, yeah. yeah. That'll be 147 doggy years. Wow. Yes. And he's in good shape. He's he's not too bad for his age. He's got like a bit of arthritis going deaf. But apart from that, he's he's okay. He has his mad half an hour with his toys every every morning, chucking them all around the place. And then he conks out for a couple of hours and he starts all over again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's certainly bright-eyed and his tail's wagging. Yes, it is. Yes, yes. And does he still want to sort of go for a walk? He doesn't go far, no, because he won't go unless Peter goes with him, and Peter can't walk far, so I have taken him out, but then about ten yards up the road, he's looking like this, say, take me back, so he just goes round the, he just goes round the back garden now, bless him, because we've got quite a big back garden. So, yeah. And, and how did you come by Otto? Well, I had a friend who, who actually bred Dutch hounds, and... He brought him in, and he brought one of his dogs. I thought, that's gorgeous. He said, well, we haven't got any true breeds, but we've got a cross. Come and have a look at it. So I went to Telford, took one look at him, took him home there and then at six weeks old. I've had him ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. And he's been an absolute smashing dog. No yeah. trouble whatsoever. Aww. So placid, he's unbelievable. Yeah. 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 As long as he's got his food yeah. and his daddy's bed, because I've been kicked out of the marital bed now. Yes, Otto, Otto. Otto won't let me get in it, so I've been kicked out to the front bedroom now, I'm afraid. So, so long as the dog's got his bed and his food, he's, quite, he's yeah. quite happy. Yeah. So that's the secret to maybe having an old dog, get out of the marital bed? Obviously, yeah. Obviously. <laughs> I don't think he's going to catch on somehow, do you? No, I don't think so either, but I don't mind. <laughs> well, you're certainly doing something right. Well, all I could put it down to is plenty of love and affection, plenty of good food, because he loves his vegetables, he loves his Sunday yeah. dinners. And he's quite a contented dog, and he's quite happy. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Brilliant. Oh, plus his chocolate. And I shouldn't say that, but he likes his bit of chocolate every yeah. day. No, I'm between dog and chocolate here. Or, no, all right, okay. I'll say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say he likes chocolate. <laughs> well, there's hope for me yet, then. Well, yeah. why not? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and you're here today at um, Dogs Trust? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because um, we're representing the charity with Otto. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, best of luck with it. Thank you very much. Otto was in great shape for his age. 
and you can see a photo of him with Lynn and Peter on the Dogcast Radio site. I hope his reign as the world's oldest dog continues for a long time. The eyes of a dog, the expression of a dog, the warmly wagging tail of a dog, and the gloriously cold, damp nose of a dog were, in my opinion, all God-given for one purpose only, to make complete fools of us human beings. Barbara Woodhouse, Dog Trainer. When I looked at Stan Rawlinson's website, I liked his approach. It's full of common sense, and it developed from his knowledge and experience. But, first things first, let's get one thing out of the way. Stan is the original dog listener. I am. Uh, I had the name long before the books were written. Um, Jan wrote uh, the dog listener, I think, uh, first book was in 2002. Uh, but I'd been practicing as a dog trainer and dog behaviorist for about 35 years. Uh, Though I didn't take the name till probably uh, 95 or 96, when I started looking at the behavioral side rather than just uh, the gun dog and the obedience side uh, of dog training, I got involved uh, with uh, a guy called John Fisher, who was very, very... Uh, well known at that time. Uh, very sadly, he died. Um, he died young. He was probably the foremost behaviorist of his time. Uh, and in fact, he died exactly, almost exactly, ten years ago, it was, uh, 1999. Uh, but I didn't get involved heavily with him. I I met him, and as we met. Uh, we realized we had an interest in the psychological side of uh, and behavioral side of working with dogs uh, and just met up on quite a few occasions uh, and it went from there. Yeah, yeah. Now, you say only 15% of the behavioral cases you, you treat are actually related to pack mentality. That's correct. Yeah, so... What do you see as, as, you know, what what is the cause of them then? Um, I think the problem that we've got in in today's behavioural and training side of it is there's a lot of practitioners out there believe 100% uh, of all problems uh, that we see is pack pack mentality, is a dominance, subdominance, uh, situation, and that we have got to be the leader, the alpha of the pack. Uh, I don't go along with that. For a start, um, separation anxiety is nothing to do with pack mentality. Mm. Um, uh, neither is a fear of traffic. Neither is many, many other problems that I have to deal with, including some aggressions. And how can pack mentality? Uh, be involved in certain situations that are medical that also cause behavioural problems. It can't. Mm. Uh, so there is a group of people out there that believes 100% of all problems are uh, pack-related, and we're told to do certain things under those circumstances. Let me give an example. Uh, if we are, we're told when we come in the house, we've got to ignore our dogs because that's what the alpha in the wolf pack would do. And, of course, the dog is a direct descendant from the wolf, and it is. There's no argument about that. The dog is about 15,000 years old now, and uh, almost certainly uh, it was a mutation from the desert wolf over in a place called Al-Malhalla, uh, which is now northern Israel. Oh. Um, there's uh, uh, still a lot of 
talk and uh, conjecture about exactly how it all started, but I've got some very, very strong feelings about that. Uh, but we, we are, or we have, uh, something that is definitely descended from the wolf. Now, if we say we've got to ignore the dogs we, when we come in, because that's what the alpha would do, I, I don't see how that quite works, uh, because I've never seen a pack of wolves ignore each other when they come in from the hunt. They don't suddenly put the, put the paws up and go, I'm not talking to you today. <laughs> uh, you're going to Coventry. That doesn't happen. Mm. It just doesn't work. You know, they have a ritualized greeting signals, and it's really, really important that they do that because it solidifies the pack. Mm. It's very important. I think part of the problem is we observed wolves in a captive situation and postulated that that was exactly how wolves lived in the wild, that is like looking at prisoners in a high uh, security jail and saying that's how the human, normal human beings live. That is not the case. Mm, mm. These wolves were forced together when they're in captivity. In the wild, they're not forced together. They come together to work together. And so it's very different. So the odd, now we've got rock cameras and be able to track these wolves through satellites, etc. We know a lot more now than we ever did before. But people are not changing their their realization that we know more. They're sticking to the old stuff, and I think they're wrong. So dogs do not ignore each other when they come in. They do not. They never have done, and they never will do. They have very, very strong ritualistic greeting signals. Mm. Secondly, we tell to eat before the dog. You can imagine all these wolves wild dogs, coyotes, and dingoes. You can just imagine them with little numbers on their back. <laughs> and number nine going, is it my turn yet? <laughs> no, they don't. They all pile in. Yes, mm. perhaps some of the leaders will get the best bits because they'll transition themselves for that. But there's no waiting and eating before someone else gets in. That doesn't happen. Once again, we tell to do things that are not happening in the wild. And I don't believe we can be an alpha. I will never believe we can be an alpha, and for a very good reason. Dogs are what's called conspecific. Now, conspecific means they can only truly pack up with their own kind. They have a very, very strong affiliation to humans and have done for the last 15,000 years. Mm. With that affiliation to humans, doesn't come the fact that they see us as dogs and alphas. They can only pack up with their own kind. Therefore, they cannot see us as a normal alpha or leader of that pack. By the way, the biologists are no longer calling alphas alphas. They're calling them breeders. And the reason being is we thought there was a very, very powerful hierarchy at the top of these wolf packs. This was because we were looking at captive wolves again. And we thought there was one alpha male and one alpha female. Not true. There's quite a number of what's known as breeders that are at the top of the hierarchy. And while they're at the top of that hierarchy, they can breed. The ones below do not breed. Mm. The males don't cock their legs and the females don't come into season. That's all done hormonally by the breeders. And the way they run the pack is not on an autocracy. It's almost on a democracy. And uh, people take certain places within inside that pack, and some of those places switch about on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's not all set in stone. It can never be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the situation 
uh, that we've got is, I cannot be a leader because I'm not a dog. I'm not a wolf. Mm. I don't have any anal glands. Mm. Not at the moment, anyway. And I'm hoping that I will get any. I don't have fur, four legs. Mm. I don't have a tail. I don't have mobile ears. And I can't smoke pee at two miles. Mm. I'm not a dog. My dogs know I'm not a dog. No amount of posturing, ignoring them when I come in, or eating before them is going to convince them that I'm a dog. I could get dressed up as Scooby-Doo and come running in the house and pee up the walls and I'm sure my wife would be vastly impressed by that <laughs> uh, but on top of that my dogs would not think I was a dog let me put it another way if you have a dog that is aggressive to other dogs if you perceived that humans were also a dog and therefore could be an alpha they would be aggressive to them as well Mm. And that's not the case. No. Do you know, that really rang true with me. I was looking at your website yesterday. And I have two dogs. I have a Labrador and a Bichon. And the Bichon can be a resource guarder. You know, nobody goes near when she's eating. Not, n no other dog goes near when she's eating, you know. And certain toys or if she's got a biscuit, you know. No, the sofa is hers till she's finished the biscuit. And she will really tell our Labrador, you know, what for the growl and the look, you know, and all this. And I've tested her so many times because I thought, I'm not having this. And, but as a, as a person, you know, I can put my hand right by the biscuit. I don't take it off, but I can sit right by her. I can put my hand by the biscuit. No reaction at all. She'll just look at me. So obviously she's not seeing me in the same way as she's seeing the Labrador. She doesn't believe she needs to resource guard those uh, treasures, if you want to put it, from you because she supplied them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, however, dogs do resource guard and they do bow guard humans as well, only yeah. because we make the mistake of actually snatching stuff away yeah. from them yeah. when they're very young or moving their bow because we're told to do that, mm. to show them we're the alpha. Take their bow away to tell them you control the food. All we're doing is making a dog very, very nervous about its, its food. Yeah. when we do that. Most resource guarding is fear-based. They're going to lose something. Mm. Okay? And because of that ability uh, of thinking of losing uh, th those things that it holds dear, it will resource guard. Even the lowest in the pack, once it has got an object, will say, this is mine. Dogs see uh, the ability of owning something as nine-tenths of the law. I got it, therefore it's mine. It may have been yours two minutes ago, mm. but now it's mine because I have it. So that's how dogs look. We don't always look at that. If we find a wallet on the floor, it's not our wallet. And we pick it up, we don't get it right. Nine-tenths of the law say, I can have this wallet and all the money in it, I don't care. No, That no. doesn't work with humans, but it does work with dogs. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, sorry, Sam, can, can I um, c cut in at that point? Because you're the... Alpha Myth um, article on your site is really interesting. And you've mentioned, you know, you, um, you believe we should strive for democracy than autocracy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you don't, I mean, that's not kind of letting your dog get away with murder. And you, you say operant conditioning methods, don't you? Yes, I do. Uh, mm. I believe that I can't be an alpha, and therefore, what can I do to control? My dogs. Now, I've got four dogs at the moment, and quite often there's a few others that uh, are twittering her about on the edges with my, uh, my children. I've got dogs and everything else, so I've normally got a house full of them. Uh, they have their own hierarchy within inside of that situation, but I've also got to control it, but I can't control it as an alpha uh, for the reasons I've given. But I can control it as a resource controller. 
And that's what I believe we are and what we need to be. And to be a resource controller, you have to do exactly that. You've got to control the resources. Now, resources can be anything from food to play to access to you. I mean, I've come up with something called the naughty step, which if you get a dog that's really giving you um, grief by uh, forcing attention on you, and that could be barking in your face, constantly pouring you, will not leave you alone, an attention junkie. And we get dogs that are an attention junkie. Yep. <laughs> uh, as we get children, we get dogs that have got OCD. As we get children, uh, <clears throat> peculiar enough, we also get dogs that have and show certain signs of autism uh, and uh, obsessive-compulsive disorders uh, and dyspraxia, which is quite unusual. I've only seen it recently in the last, uh, say, five or six years, but I have seen it. Um, So we have to look at some of the things that we see in children, we also see in dogs. One of the things that we need to be able to do is control resources around children as well. Uh, and so if we can do that, we can also do it with dogs. And it's really, really important. The naughty step, for instance, if a dog is really uh, demanding attention constantly, is keep it shortly, shortly, about four, four foot, uh, quite thin. And w- what it happens is as soon as it really starts pushing uh, and it will not stop, don't say a word, just go out take it into another room with no glass in that door so the dog can't see you. Close the door on the lead and leave the dog for between 30 seconds and two minutes. If the dog comes, when you take the dog out, if it does again, take it back into the naughty step, which I call it, put the lead, jam it in the door, between 30 seconds and two minutes, no longer. And do that, and in the end, the dog will work out very, very quickly why it's getting the opposite of what it wants. Because it's barking at you or pouring at you for attention, it's actually getting the opposite. It's getting social isolation. Mm. And it works very, very well. And sometimes a naughty staff can work with children. Mm, mm. No, you can't put a lead on the child and jam the lead in the door. <laughs> no, that'll be I'm not suggesting that for a minute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, the dog... As you say, it wants to at least be with you, even if it doesn't want to please you necessarily. It wants to be with you. So if you're denying it that, it's, they're not stupid. It's going to motivate it. They're incredibly intelligent. Mm. I think they're far more intelligent. In fact, a lot of scientific uh, findings recently has come up that we now realise that they, they actually have a sense of humour uh, and have tested it. And there's lots of other things that I see around dogs. Dogs learn much quicker than us humans. The reason being, we are set in our ways more than dogs. If you give the dog opportunity to learn, and I prefer to allow the dog to work it out for itself, and it does it so quickly. It's quite amazing. Uh, For instance, a dog uh, who pushes through doors in front of you. I have no problem with a dog going in front of me, except for safety reasons. There could be a cat on the other side, there could be another dog, or there could be a person that is frightened of dogs. Mm. So I prefer to control that that situation by stopping the dog pushing through. And I can stop any dog pushing through a door in around about 10 seconds. And it will remember that. And very simply, because I believe we've got to be resource controllers, I've come come up with uh, a training idea called the Jingler. Uh, And basically it goes on the lead. And it's an aid memoir. It's uh, a sound that makes the dog concentrate on what you're doing, both your actions and your commands. And what it effectively does is it takes all the adverts out of the film. 
So you're training and you know, you, you, you're cutting loads and loads of bits out. So instead of spending half an hour on a training uh, situation, you can train in minutes. Oh. I can stop a dog pulling on a lead and a dog dog normally within three to three and a half minutes without a halting, without a chest harness, just with this sound. And then I take the bells off afterwards and dogs walk okay. Okay, you have to program the dog into the situation, so it may take a number of days for it to really set hard in it. But uh, I, I've done it lots of times. I've got a DVD showing me doing it. I go around the country taking dogs out of the audience, stopping them jumping up, stopping them uh, being aggressive to other dogs, stopping them uh, pulling on a lead. And I'll get the the dogs I've never met out of the audience, and I'll work with them there and then. Uh, and hundreds of thousands of people have seen me do it so I can mm. do it uh, they think I've got some sort of magical trick I haven't I've got, I know how dogs learn and by n understanding how the dog learns in the first place then I can adjust the way uh, I work with it and I find that I don't have to give a command to stop it pushing through the door. I put the jingler on the lead, I, I open the door a crack, as the dog moves forward I close the door and just give it a tiny twitch on the lead which activates the bell which goes ching I close the door three times the first time it happens the dog goes oh that sound happened and the door closed the second time it's happened again that sound happened and the door closed and the third time it goes that sound always happens and that door always closes if I move forward therefore the dog you'll see it visually look at you it then take one step backwards and sit down you open the door and it look at you for permission. Oh. Takes about seconds, literally seconds, yeah. just to do it correctly. Now, to be a resource controller, one of the first things I've got to do is I've got to control the dog around food, snatching off people, taking food from others. Therefore, if that dog respects me as a controller, for one, it won't jump up on me. Oh. It can't. It has to have a level of respect. Dogs jump out, up on you for disrespect, and they, they wouldn't do it in the wild. But they do it because they think they can get away with it. They're also doing it for attention-seeking. The problem with jumping up is if they do it in the park, if they do it elsewhere and they knock a child over oh. or, or whatever, then you've got serious problems, particularly in our country, in the UK, under the Dangerous Dogs Act, that could be mm. euthanized by knocking someone over. The mm. scene is dangerous out of control in a public place, and that can't happen. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Now, you, uh, it, this is fascinating, Stan, but um, I'm aware that time is passing, so, you know, I, I'd like to talk about everything we'd, we'd like to fit in. Um, and you talk about sort of how dogs learn. Um, and I was looking at how you work with your clients. And again, that makes sense to me because you, you don't have them in to, to your home or your clinic or anything like that. You go and look where the problem is happening, don't you? Exactly. Uh, I always start off at the client's house and then we go where the problem is, whether it's outside in the park or whatever the case may be. But I work with the dog and the client in their own home because that's where, that's where it all, all bases from. That, that, that's home base, if you want to put it, from all the problems that go out there. And I work on a 75-25% ratio. I believe that I have to work with humans 75% of the time mm -hmm. and the dogs 25% of the time. As I said yeah. before, dogs learn very quickly. Humans take a little longer to change their behavior. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, humans question, don't they? And, oh, I don't want to do that. And, you know. It's not just that. They also find difficulty changing from the norm. 
We have a habit of saying the dog's name before every command, for instance, and it's yeah. difficult to change. Yeah. It's rover set, rover down. Of course, what you're doing is, is reducing the actual command because the dog hears rover and then a sort of blar afterwards. So if we actually just give the command as a single command, you sit, down, stay, not sit down, that's two words. Keep mm. everything simple. Mm. Remember, dogs don't speak English. They don't speak French. They don't speak Chinese. What they do speak is body language. It's 95% of their whole language. Um, and it is fascinating. We can actually learn that as well. And if we watch the body language on a dog, we will really, really understand what is going on. And the first thing I do when I walk into the house, I look at the body language of the human and I look at the body language of the dog. And that tells me a lot about uh, the relationship they have with the dog and how the dog feels about them and how they feel about the dog to some extent. So body language, because we're very, very high on body language as well. The media that you chose to work in, which is radio, doesn't show body language. But uh, as you no doubt know, if you watch someone on a stage speaking, uh, if they just stood there and, uh, and without any movements and without any facial expression to speak, you get bored very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, they are so good at reading. You know, you can't fool a dog, can you? No, you can't fool a dog. Um, you, they, they know. They know by your body language. That's why you don't actually have to say their name each time. The other thing we do, we tell them off by saying their name yeah. constantly. We say things, uh, we say Rover, when he turns around, I told you before. And in the end, the dog goes, look at my paw, because the face ain't listening. <laughs> because for 50% of the time, you're giving it a hard time. Don't do yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, make the name positive, and then it will look at you when you tell it, instead of look away thinking she's only going to give me a hard time again. Mm. Yeah. Now, the other thing that you say, which, again, I can absolutely see the sense of, is you don't um, believe in, you know, residential training, sending your dog away somewhere. I think it's open to abuse. Um, I have uh, some quite nasty pictures uh, and uh, a lot of information that was sent to me, one by clients and two by trainers that were at residential uh, courses, some of them quite well known, uh, the residential ones. If a dog is not learning quick enough, it's too easy to start using abuse on them. I would never, ever, I never, ever train a dog uh, without the owner being there all the time. And the reason I say that is I have so much of an effect on a dog very, very quickly. They may think I've damaged it or hurt it or, 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 or done something aggressive to it, which I never do. It's just that because I know what I'm doing and how I do it, has such a profound effect. I can't afford them to think that, you know, I've done something awful to do that so quickly. Yeah. Um, but it is open. Uh, uh, Secondly, the main problem on that, of course, is it's not just a dog that needs training. So why take the dog away and train it when, to all intents and purposes, my work is 75, 25. Mm. So are they going to put 75% into the, into the owner? No, they're not. They're going to say, oh, this is what we did. And the owner's not really uh, going to buy into exactly what they did without being there right from the start yeah. and understanding how it changes the dog. Uh, and therefore, it doesn't work. I, I personally believe it does not work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing is we, my daughter and I go to training together and... Um, 
she the one time her dog which is the bishop was sort of um and it and her dog hasn't done as much training as buddy has um was playing her up a bit and she said oh can i work buddy and you can have star so it's okay and we swapped well star would do less for me than she would for my daughter and interestingly buddy wouldn't work very well for jenny because you know she doesn't do things the same as i do you know, yeah. not, not right or wrong. She just does things differently. And so neither dog worked as well. They're not. It's not like saying, can I borrow your car, is it? It's, it's a little, there's a brain. It's a sentient being. You can't just swap like And that. even so, when you borrow a car, you've got to learn, relearn which side the indicators are yeah. on. And you've got to put, yeah, hang on, the lights are in a different place. Say, oh, this is an automatic and that's manual. Yeah. So yeah. It, to some extent, I suppose you could say, it's like borrowing a car, <laughs> <It's> a, a, <laughs> an unfamiliar car. And, uh, and one of the things I say to families, I said, you know, the dog shouldn't be in, unfamiliar in the way you all work with it. You should all be singing from the same hymn book. Yeah. If you yeah. all are consistent, dogs love consistency. Uh, some dogs get off on consistency. Border collies are amazing for it. If they don't, you know, it, it's, it's exactly, oh, it's one minute past six. Now <laughs> I get fed. And it will start whinging and moaning and doing this, that, and because that's what happens at that time. Yeah. Um, and they should really, really put down how they're working with the dog. So if, if you're walking it on the left-hand side, then all of you should walk it on the left-hand side. Mm. Yeah? Mm. If one encourages it to jump up, the other one doesn't want it to jump up, really, you should be <laughs> singing from the same handbook. Mm. Um, and that's sometimes a problem. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know there's a, there's a couple of things that you wanted to um, talk about specifically, and one was early spaying and castration. Yeah, early spaying and uh, castration, which is neutering. Neutering is a generic term for both. Uh, so it covers spaying and castration. Uh, what, I, what I did about eight years ago was uh, I started recording uh, on, my, on my notes and everything else uh, when the dog had been castrated or when it had been spayed. And uh, then I interrogated that information on my computer and found that 40% of the dogs I was seeing with behavioral problems had been neutered uh, below nine months. Uh, and that went bang, it put a great big bell in my head and went, what's going on here? And they all had similar problems. Yeah. And the similar problems were lack of attention, frustration, aggression in some cases. Uh, they had difficulty retaining uh, learning, they were actually pedomorphic. Uh, and the word pedomorphic means childlike, puppy-like. Mm -hmm. And what happens is when we neuter before social and physical maturity, we're taking away three major hormones, progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone. All dogs have got all three. The females have got less testosterone than the males, and the males have got less estrogen and progesterone than the females. Mm. It's as simple as that. However, those hormones are vital for a number of things. One of them is to allow the dog to both mentally and physically mature. It gets in the brain sheath. It's involved in spinal column. It's involved in uh, the whole mental process. You uh, neuter a dog to a male dog too early, it won't cock its leg. 
it will stay pedomorphic, it will stay childlike. But the problem that you've got there is it, it sounds very nice having a puppy for the remainder of their life, but that isn't funny when really these dogs have got very little attention span. Not only that, I found they also had some medical problems, um, and one of them was spindly legs, longer legs, because the sex hormones switch on something called osteoclasts. Osteoclasts switch, uh, switch the bone growth on and off in the legs. Oh. So when you get to a, the optimum age and size, it switches off the bone growth so the legs don't carry on. Agromelic giants don't have that and they carry on growing and their bone structure carries on growing. So if you see a spindly, quite a spindly dog uh, with long sort of sticky legs, you've got a fair idea that that dog is probably being, almost certainly, been neutered too early. Oh. A lot of the females get um, incontinent if they're done too early. Now, they sound, I'm not having to go to the RSPCA, uh, but they are actually neutering dogs at this moment in time at six weeks old, which I actually find absolutely ludicrous. Uh, as I say, uh, these hormones are not an optional extra. They're not like going in and saying, I won't have a sat nav on that car. They're a vital component of any mammal. Take it away from a human, you get all sorts of problems. Yeah. And it's well documented, those problems. A male, his voice won't break, he won't grow any hair on his thing, he will become mm -hmm. frustrated, lack of attention, it's documented right away through. Well, dogs are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And we just, we just, I'm not against neutering. I will never be against neutering. Mm -hmm. But I think we should neuter at the right time. Now, what I'm asked then is, when's the right time? Well, for males, it will depend on the breed. If you've got a chihuahua, you're probably looking at 10 months maximum. The dog should be cocking its leg, really cocking its leg, weeing over the tree instead of the bottom of it for at least one month before considering castration because that's showing uh, sexual and social maturity. Mm -hmm. uh, with a female, if it's a smaller dog, you may get away after the first season, three months after the first season. With a larger dog, you can't. It should be after the second season. If for instance, you're looking at the male again, a German Shepherd, you're looking at about 17 months before castration. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at a Great Dane, you're looking at 36 months. Okay. Uh, if you're looking at something uh, like a Labrador, probably 14 to 15 months. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it's not all set in stone. You, mm -hmm. One, you've got to watch the dog and, and uh, its maturity and, and what it's going through. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is causing so many behavioral and physical problems. You know, cruciate ligament problems because of the extra bone growth, um, uh, bone cancer. Mm. Uh, I don't know whether you're aware that nearly all dogs, male dogs that are castrated die of colon disease. No. Uh, yeah, they, an, an aggressive colon disease. Look it up. Mm. Look yeah. it up on the internet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but and in particular, if they're done, uh, they're done early. Uh, so that is that is a real, real difficulty, mm. uh, uh, and uh, and I think it's it's causing more problems than anyone ever imagined. Mm. My second beef is annual vaccinations, um, and. There's a lot of talk about this, and the rescue centers, you've got to do it annually because of this, that, and the other. Unfortunately, if you were a doctor and you went and took the drugs from a drug com company and ignored their advice, you would probably be struck off. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, the vaccination companies are saying that the majority of the vaccinations, except for two, which are 
Fowles disease, oh. leptospirosis, lepto, should be done annually. So should parva influenza, not parva virus. Okay, that is said to every three years. The viruses, these vaccinations are supposed to be administered every three years, not every year. And the problem with over-vaccinating is it's causing problems within the dog. By that, it's affecting its immune system. Uh, it's affecting varying other parts of dogs, and dogs are becoming very, very ill because of it. Uh, now, it's well, in America, they're almost changing it completely uh, at present uh, to two or three year vaccination, uh, taking into consideration you do need uh, the virus disease one and the parvo influenza mm-hmm. um, annually. Uh, but over here, we haven't. Uh, and I certainly know that my vet doesn't ever do parvovirus, uh, distemper, and all the other ones that are in there uh, annually. Uh, but I know that's a, a lot of vets that do because it's a very, very important income for them. But in the end, surely the dog's well-being and health should come first. I think, like, like doctors, it should be first do no harm. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I have a real concern about annual vaccination and the effect it's having on dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also some problems I see with uh, older dogs being uh, neutered, well, as mentioned, neutering before, particularly females. I've seen quite a few recently that were neutered, uh, uh, spayed, and suddenly, within two days, turned very, very aggressive, uh, but incredibly aggressive. And... Um, uh, this is known. Not only that, if you have an aggressive female dog uh, under the age of six months that is showing aggression to the owners, if you have that neutered, it's almost guaranteed that that dog will be more aggressive. Okay. Well, you're taking away progesterone and estrogen. Like progesterone and estrogen are calming agents, the serotonin uplifters. So by removing them, you're actually causing more anxiety. Yeah. It must be like permanent PMS. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Imagine, you know, you're taking a young child uh, and you're taking the ovaries uh, mm. and everything else uh, away. You know, suddenly they're going to go bang and they're going to change immediately. Yeah, yeah. And, but real big time. Yeah. And, uh, of course, that causes an effect. I mean, look at the effect those hormones have on on us, as males and females. Mm. And they're enormous. So to take them away too early is really very silly. Mm. Mm. Um, Stan, I know there's a lot of information um, on your website so that um, if people would like to go and read more um, about what they said, and I found it really interesting. Um, can you give us the, the address of the website? Yes, certainly. It's uh, www.doglistener.com. That's all one word, D-O-G-L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R.co.uk. So it's doglessner.co.uk. Nice, easy one to remember. We have the link to Stan's site on the Dogcast Radio site where you'll find lots of really interesting articles and information about Stan's approach to dog training. So if your New Year's resolution was to improve your training skills, you know where to make a start. My most satisfying aspect of animal training is a very simple moment. After a show when I leave the stage door and there's a crowd gathered, sometimes I hear someone say the following and it makes it all worthwhile. How do they make that dog do that? I smile because I am the only they and I do it with love. William Berloni, dog trainer, 
about transforming a severely abused dog from the pound into Sandy in the Broadway production of Annie. I hope you and your dogs are having a happy and healthy 2010 so far. In the next episode of Dogcast Radio, we have an interview with Catherine Segura, who's an animal handler in Hollywood. Due to the pressure of personal and professional commitments, for the foreseeable future, we will be producing one episode a month of Dogcast, but it will still be the usual mix of anything and everything dog-related. So till next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. By phone from the UK, you can contact us on 0121-288-0922. From the US, you can contact us on our American number, which is 315-849-2022. From any other country, you'll need your international exit code and then 44121-288-0922. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What kind of dog sniffs out new flowers? A bad hound.